Okay, please turn with me in your New Testaments now to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. We'll read through 1 John 2, 3. And then we'll go back to our sermon text for tonight, continuing our series in Judges with Judges chapter 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First John chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Amen. Now please turn with me back to Judges chapter 10. Judges 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth-Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anchor of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out, again, uh, cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, 
and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. When the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Amen. You may be seated. As many of you know, one of my favorite theologians, Herman Bavink, and there's something I read by him, I think, in my first year of seminary that stuck with me ever since. I'll never forget it. Uh, some of you have heard me describe this before, some of you more than once, where he's talking about the attributes of God, and he's answering the question, uh, what's the difference? How do we compare what the Bible means when it talks about God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love? Uh, sometimes we use those words as if they're almost almost synonyms. And, of course, they are very closely related, but they're not exactly the same thing. And here's what Bavink has to say about it. He says that God's grace is his goodness when it is shown to those who only deserve evil. God's mercy is also God's goodness, but when it's shown to those who are in distress. And God's love is God's goodness when he gives himself to his people. See, the, the goodness of God is this kind of bigger category. But then we ask, how does God show his goodness to people? He shows it to sinners, first of all. He shows it to people who only deserve evil, and yet he shows them his goodness anyway. That's grace. And then, second, he shows it to the needy. He shows it to people who, whether because of their own sin or because of the way that people have sinned against them or, uh, or just because of the consequences of living in a broken and cursed world, are in distress of one kind or another. And that is God's mercy. But then he goes one step further because God doesn't just show us his undeserved favor and he doesn't just show us his compassion. God goes further and gives us his very self in his covenant promises, and best of all, in his own Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the love of God. Now, here in Judges 10, uh, we're going to begin to see uh, God's grace and God's mercy on display uh, towards his sinful people, who only deserve his judgment, who only deserve evil. And they have also... We could see, we could, we're going to see they have brought misery upon themselves by their sin. 
And that grace and mercy that God shows to Israel then is going to direct us forward to think about the grace and the mercy and the love of God that he has promised and shown to us in Jesus. But first, uh, let me give you a few headings for walking our way through the text tonight. First will be verses 1 through 5, an interesting interlude. Then verses 6 through 9, we'll call crime and punishment. And finally, verses 10 through 18, repentance and reformation. So an interesting interlude, crime and punishment, and repentance and reformation. Uh, Repentance and reformation are in quotes in the outline because that's taken from Matthew Henry's heading. We'll get to that. We'll get there when we get there. All right, so let's start with this interesting interlude about uh, Tola and Jair, sometimes called uh, minor judges, quote-unquote, not because they're less important or because they were less powerful or something than the other judges, but just because we have less information about them. The book of Judges doesn't take us take as long to tell us their histories. Um, I think a good key to understanding why these two judges are listed here in particular is to flip a couple chapters further ahead and look at the end of chapter 12, what happens after the narrative of Jephthah. Jephthah is the major judge that we're about to study next, uh, in starting in chapter 11. Okay, so we're on the verge of the Jephthah story. We're introducing the Jephthah story. And that Jephthah story is kind of framed on either side by these so-called minor judges. In chapter, beginning of chapter 10, it's Tola and Jair. And then in chapter 12, it's Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Now, notice particularly the way that Ibzan and Elon at the end of chapter 12, so starting chapter 12, verse 8, verse 8 and verse 11, uh, Ibzan and Elon, uh, pardon me, Ibzan and Abdon are described there with an emphasis on their many, many children. And then also apparently the, the, the wealth and the high status of this family of, of these families of many children. Um, and it's the same thing that we see back in chapter 10, our text tonight, about Jair, how he had 30 sons, it said, chapter 10, verse Um, four, who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. Again, large number of children with wealth and high social standing. Okay. First of all, let's just clear up one thing, which is that that large number of children, while on the one hand you could see it as a sign of God's blessing, of fruitfulness, it does not necessarily mean that all is well, because remember, Gideon had 70 sons, and how did he have so many sons? Well, it's because he had so many wives. And that, of course, was evidence of the way that Gideon was acting like a Canaanite king rather than like a godly leader of Israel. Uh, So not all is well, but it is significant that these uh, judges with many children and great wealth appear at the beginning and the end of the Jephthah story. Why? What does this have to do with Jephthah? Well, because Jephthah is very different. It's a great contrast with the major judge who's actually going to be in focus in the next two chapters. Jephthah is, we're going to find out in chapter 11, verse 1, he's the son of a prostitute. And so he is of a lower uh, class than his brothers who drive him away from the family home because they don't want to have anything to do with him. 
also, whereas Jair and then later Ibzan and Abdon have these many children, these many sons, well, what about Jephthah? You remember he has just one daughter. Again, we're framing this judge who we're about to, about to study, and of course her story has a very tragic ending. Um, but we'll get there when we get there in future weeks. Uh, there are a couple other things we could say about Tola and Jair, um, but really I think that's the most important thing. Uh, perhaps we could just mention in passing um, that the presence of these two judges uh, reminds us of God's continued provision of stability and leadership for Israel throughout this period of the judges that is generally characterized by decay and apostasy, by disobedience. Um, we don't know exactly the details of what life was like under these two. We do know that Tola saved Israel, though, uh, verse 1, which probably indicates that he also, like Gideon and others before him, was a military leader who rescued the Israelites from yet another Canaanite enemy threat. Also, we can notice at the end of each of these short accounts how there's that repeated refrain we see at the end of all the judges' stories, that he died. And he died. Um, No matter how good or effective the judges in this book are, and some are definitely better than others, all of them, to a man, are temporary They are limited in their reach, their ability to rescue Israel during their lifetimes. And their lifetimes themselves are limited also by death, which is part of the overall picture that's being built in this book of Israel's inadequacy, the inadequacy of all of Israel's leaders, and their dire need for the Lord and his kingship over them, his provision for them. That's what's being um, pictured for us throughout the book. Okay, now, now you would hope that with leaders like these, the Lord is providing for them, that Israel, uh, you might find here uh, following and obeying and worshiping the Lord in response to their leadership and, and being loyal to the covenant. But in fact, you get to verse 6 and you find that exactly, exactly the opposite is what's actually the case right now in Israel. Verse 6, in fact, is almost overwhelming in the way it describes in wave after wave the, not just Israel's idolatry. It's not just idolatry. It is the total promiscuity of their idolatry, their devotion to all of the other gods that they can possibly get their hands on people of the Lord again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, emphasizing that this is a repeated pattern for Israel. And it says, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. See, it wasn't enough for them to have just one pantheon. It's not just enough for them to be pantheists, uh, sorry, to be polytheists out of this one, uh, one pantheon that they worshiped. They have to have a pantheon of pantheons, many sets of false gods, and they just take them all, which is, by the way, that kind of little bit of everything approach to religion is exactly how a lot of people build their religion today. 
including a lot of people who go by the name of Christian. You've heard of the rise of uh, the nuns, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not Catholic nuns in U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, people who say they have no religion. Um, include, that includes uh, some people who are maybe atheists or agnostic, but it could include others who are uh, spiritual but not religious, is how they might describe themselves. And what that usually means, um, as, as other people have commented, is that people who are spiritual but not religious um, really want to be free to pick and choose. They want to be free to pick and choose the parts of every religion that they like without being accountable to any religion for parts that they don't like. Um, think about Paul in the city of Athens a couple thousand years later uh, in that city that was full of one temple after another and he starts his speech. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's like he's trying to think of the nicest thing he can say at that moment. So, well, you are very religious. Um, but recall also how earlier, as he was walking through the city, how his spirit was provoked within him as he saw how full the city was of idols. See, brothers and sisters, you and I still live in Athens. You and I still live in Canaan. Not in those physical places, of course. Not in those ancient cultures. But it is the same city of man, to use Augustine's term for it. It is the same Vanity Fair, to use the term from Pilgrim's Progress for it. Yesterday, today, and until Jesus comes back. And see, the people around us, including people you know and love, are deceived into thinking that they can just pick and choose. That all of the options are equally valid. You want to listen to your guru that you found in Tibet or something? Well, great. You do that. That sounds really good. You want to start your day with transcendental meditation? That's really cool. Why don't you tell me? Um, you, you worship your ancestors. Wow, that is really neat. You have such a rich, meaningful culture. Um, you want to use your horoscope to try to find your soulmate. That's awesome. Uh, and, and, and you don't go to church because you think you can connect with God better out on the lake in nature. Well, that sounds really deep for you. It's like a buffet. A spiritual buffet where people can pick and choose from every idolatry that is out there on the market. The sad thing is that some of those religious options and practices are very, very tempting and drawing in the people of God themselves. Dare we say ourselves. Where we want to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's not even to start to mention the idols that all of us tend to share just by being part of Western culture, regardless of our official religion, the idols of wealth and power and pleasure and comfort and convenience, which are all treated as fair game too. Those, those idols that we devote ourselves to, and we make tremendous sacrifices for, sometimes without even thinking about it. Just It's so much part of the air that we breathe and the culture that we live in. And then, of course, the flip side of that is if there's something that God actually does command that makes us a little bit uncomfortable or that's a little bit inconvenient, well, we'll just skip that. 
Because after all, we wouldn't want to be legalistic, right? We wouldn't want to offend anybody. And so we'll just set those things to the side, even though the Lord has clearly commanded them. And what we want to see here in the book of Judges is the consequences. Consequences for this promiscuous idolatry. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, Coming on the heels of the death of Abimelech, there it was Abimelech who was crushed by that millstone dropping on his head, but now, now it's all the people of Israel who are crushed under the weight of the anger of God. For 18 years... These nations oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. And it's summed up there in verse 9. So that Israel was severely distressed. Israel was severely distressed. I want you to notice here how the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime in a bitterly ironic way. See, the Israelites have decided to worship the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. Verse 6. So the Lord hands them over to who? To the Ammonites and the Philistines. They end up being enslaved by the people whose gods they've chosen to worship. And this brings us to a actually a very basic spiritual principle. It's taught in the Old Testament. It's taught by the Lord Jesus in the New Testament and by the apostles that we serve whatever we worship. And we worship whatever we serve. It almost goes without saying because worship is a kind of service. But what it means a little bit in a little more detail is that whatever we devote our hearts to, whatever we love the most, whatever we care about the most, whatever we're most committed to, whatever we're the most reluctant to part with, that is also what we will spend the most effort on what we will spend the most emotional energy on, the most mental space we'll devote to it, the most attention, the most work, effort. This is illustrated in the New Testament when Paul talks about how we're either going to be slaves of sin or slaves of God. But then, of course, he goes on to explain that serving God is where we actually find the truest kind of liberty, right? Because sin promises us liberty, Freedom, throwing off those nasty restrictions that God puts on us to keep us from having fun, right? That keep us from doing the things that we want to do and keeping us from following our hearts and keeping us from indulging our desires. It promises us freedom from all those restrictions, right? But it never gives us freedom in the end. It gives us bondage. It gives us slavery. It keeps us enslaved to the worst parts of ourselves. It, it tightens the chains of our broken and wayward thoughts and feelings and desires. Think of 2 Peter 2 and how it says of the false teachers, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. I think it's so poignant when verse 9 says, so that Israel was severely distressed. There's a part of uh, our shorter catechism 
that I love where it, it talks about what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And it says that the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Sin and misery. And then there's a whole question about the sinfulness that we fell into together. What's that like? But then the next question singles out, what is the misery of our sinful condition? The misery that sin brings. And it describes, spells it out for us. What is that misery like? And it says how we lost our communion with God. That's misery. How we're under his wrath and curse. It's misery. And then how we experience then all the miseries of this life. And then death itself. And one day, if not for Christ, the pains of hell forever. It's the misery of sin. And see, that is exactly what we so often lose sight of in the face of temptation. Thomas Brooks, Puritan, in his uh, book, The Precious Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he reminds us that Satan is a very clever fisherman. And he presents the bait but hides the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. He presents the allure of sin to our desires and our appetites and our pride, but he hides from us until it's too late. The misery that sin always, always brings in the end. And that's why the Lord has given us passages like this one, so that we will be able to see in the experience of Israel the misery that sin brings and how sad how devastating the end of that road is that starts with just a little bit of a step out of the narrow way and onto the broad, easy path that leads away from him that, frankly, most people are traveling on. So the message here is don't be taken in by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin brings misery. The Lord urgently wants to communicate that to you. When the moment of temptation comes to you and you're thinking, just this once, it's not that big a deal. It's not hurting anyone else. This will make me happy. This will be such a relief. Why would God withhold this from me? Or how can it be wrong when it feels so right? to remember in that moment that it is a lie, that it is a plot from the devil himself to steal away your happiness and holiness in Jesus. Sin will make you miserable, just as Israel was severely distressed. And what we sometimes don't appreciate, though, is that that very misery brought by our sin can itself actually be a mercy from God. When that misery is the very thing that keeps us from being content and complacent in our sin, and it's what drives us away from that sin and into the arms of God's forgiving grace. Look at verse 10 here where it says, right after it says Israel was severely distressed, verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God, and have served the Baals. Now, the Lord, um, when he responds, he doesn't immediately respond with comfort, does he? 
at first, it's almost like the Lord's answer is, yes, yes, you have. And it's pretty bad. Uh, The Lord retraces the history of everything that he's done for them in the past, all the ways that he's delivered them from their enemies, and he challenges them. Hey, why don't you just go and turn to those gods that you have now? Why don't you ask those gods to save you? You might think, well, that's kind of harsh. That doesn't sound very gracious or merciful or loving of the Lord. Well, consider a few things about this. First of all, consider the fact that God is answering them at all. That in itself is a sign that something good is happening here. God is speaking to his sinful people. He doesn't have to do that. He could just turn away and let them self-destruct. And that's all it would really take to destroy them, just to leave them to their own devices. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He comes back to them here, and he interacts with this confession of sin. And second, consider that their mere statement, we have sinned, it's not necessarily the same thing as repentance. It's a good start. It's a good start, but it's not what the Bible teaches us that repentance looks like. Even being sorry. See, these people seem genuinely sorry. They seem genuinely sorry in verse 10. But even being sorry is not the same thing as repentance. See, godly grief, 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret while worldly grief produces death. See, there's two different kinds of sorrow that we can have, even over our sin, a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow. One leads to salvation, one produces death. See, what's happening here is as the Lord kind of holds his people at arm's length a little bit at first, what he's actually doing is he's leading them onward to the next step in true repentance, And that is what comes next. After this first answer from the Lord, the people of Israel respond to him again, and they say, we have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then what do they do? It says they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And there you see the difference of what genuine biblical repentance looks like. It's when we not only say that we're sorry, we not only feel genuinely sorry for our sin, that's part of it, but furthermore, we actually turn away from it. We turn away from it by turning towards God, depending on his grace to to put our sin to death and to live instead in a different way, in new obedience, turning away from sin and turning to God. I want you to look at the impact that that kind of repentance has then on the relationship between God and Israel. How does the Lord respond? It says, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is where we see the mercy, the compassion of God as he sees his people in distress and he is impatient over their misery. See, by by not turning his back on Israel, by continuing to speak to them, by continuing to nudge them towards repentance, such a dark time of rebellion, God was showing his grace, first of all, his, his goodness towards people who only deserved evil. Now, at the end of verse 16, 
God reveals to us his mercy, his goodness, as he shows it to those who are in distress. And so, if you know your Bible history well, what do you think you can expect to happen next? As God becomes impatient at the misery of his people. I think if you know the story of the Exodus, you know the story of so many other occasions in Israel's life where things like this have happened, I think that we should all be like that little boy on Mr. Incredible's driveway saying, well, I don't know, but something amazing, I guess. Just like every time before. Why? Because that's the kind of God God is. He's a God of grace and a God of mercy. That is his character that he's been revealing to us throughout the history of his people, that he is a God who shows goodness to sinners who don't deserve it, and who when he sees them in their misery that they've brought upon themselves, he responds to that misery with compassion, with mercy. And when that compassionate mercy and that undeserved grace begin to act on our behalf, what do we experience then but that wonderful third attribute we were talking about earlier, when God gives to us his very self, the love of God, which he has shown to us sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about yourselves. For while we were still weak, Romans 5 says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one, Paul gets this, nails the, put, uh, hits the nail on the head here when he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person even. Though perhaps for a, a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2. I love the heading that Matthew Henry gives to verses 10 through 16 of this chapter. Repentance and Reformation. This is one of very many times in Israel's history that God brings about repentance and reformation among his covenant people. Brothers and sisters, what does the church of the Lord Jesus Christ need today but repentance from our sins and reformation according to the word of God? What do our families need today but repentance from our sins and reformation according to the word of God? What does our nation need today but repentance from our sins and reformation according to the word of God? And What do each one of our hearts need in this moment before the Lord tonight? But repentance from our sins and reformation according to the word of God. You see, when you turn to God out of your sin and you tell him, Lord God, I have sinned against you. I have forsaken my God and served all of these idols of mine instead of you. And you put those things away. And you turn from them in dependence on him to serve him anew by the strength that only he can supply. Then what can you expect? What can you expect? You can expect his grace, first of all. You can expect him not to crush you, not to condemn you. 
not to turn you away, but to give us people who only deserve evil from him. Instead, for him to give us his goodness, his favor in Christ. You can expect not just his grace, you can also expect his mercy, can't you? You can expect that he will have compassion on you in your misery, in the distress your sin has brought on you. And he will give you the comfort that comes through the spirit of his son. And finally, you can rest not only in his grace, not only in his mercy, but also in his love. That in Christ, God has not just given you these blessings from a distance, but he has given to you himself. Because the Lord Jesus himself has come to be God with us and he has died and risen for us. And there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is why we can have confidence that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And that is good news for the people of God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us history of Israel in all of its gory details, including the depths of your people's failure, because, Lord, that is where we find ourselves. Lord, we have not loved you as we ought. We have not served you as we ought. And, Lord, we have transgressed your commandments. We have sinned against you, forsaken you for our idols, And yet, Lord, we turn to you again, asking for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your grace, and for renewed strength through your Holy Spirit. To walk in new obedience, to put that sin to death, to put those idols away. And to walk in restored fellowship and communion with you. That would be borne out in lives bearing fruit that would be for the glory of your name and for the blessing of the people around us. Instead of the dishonor and destruction that we would naturally come up with on our own. We trust you for this, Lord. We're so thankful for your grace and mercy and love to us in Christ. Pray all this in his name. Amen.